0: The, um, just really quickly, the uh, refreshments list has been updated, so on the website where it has refreshments, you might want to take another look at that. Um, The first round through, I just went straight through all the dates, went right down to the end and didn't even consider, "Hmm, we didn't meet on the conference and we didn't, we're not meeting on Easter, which is another update for you. We don't meet on Easter and we have a, um, and that's on March 31st, and then on April 28th, we have a combined Sunday school, so we don't meet on that one either. So we'll give you more heads up as those come closer, but um, we're not meeting on those. So I had to rearrange the refreshment schedule to map those dates out. So if you could take a look at that, that'd be helpful. And on my list, you'll get an automatic update reminder. So if you've been getting those, it's an automated system. So I just plug your name in. So if you traded with somebody, that's great but you'll probably still get a reminder unless you tell me and then I can change it on the list (laughs) so if you've already organized it with somebody that's just fine just be aware that you might get an automated email that says hey you're bringing something this week but you can take care of that Um, there was an ask when we lost all of our information on the website we lost all of our word and PDF documents so I had to put them back up there again and so back on the website is word and PDF files for all the notes so those are also on there um, um, just, just for your plan as it stands right now Lord willing our last class will be we'll be meeting on May 19th some were asking about what that end date looks like it's May 19th is the last day barring any sickness illness things we have to move around but that's where it stands right now and for those that are in the actual cohort for the counseling You'll be in, on the wait list as well. You'll be receiving a syllabus, which should have been out a while back, but neglected to have that already for you. But that'll give you the page numbers specifically that you need. Um, so we'll have that syllabus out um, probably this afternoon. We'll have that out to you so you have that information. Um, I know I haven't asked this in a while, but are there, there's, thank you, if you can start the attendance list on each side there. They're starting over here. I think you already started. Thank you. Um, but are there any questions as we're going so far? Not about the counseling, but about Administration things that need to be sorted out um, you know what i'll send an email out to everyone so they have that again just because there's a reminder on that but it's I can send that out to you, okay, let me pray and we 'll get get going here. Father, we do thank you for um, the conference we had last week and how fitting it is to fit right along with what we 're studying in sanctification. And, Lord, how we are to be holy as you are holy. Lord, help us to be humble and not thinking of others to apply this to, but our own hearts so that we can be holy and we can be sanctified. We pray a blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Steve. Well, it's great to be back with all you guys again this week. After a short break, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn up into 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at the passage that uh, Pastor Riccardi went over this uh, last Sunday. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. Let me read it for us. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There's two verbs that are key in really understanding this passage, both behold and transformed. As Riccardi explained, we have the responsibility, okay, to behold. That is God's glory through the means of grace that he's provided. He mentioned a number of them. There's the word of God. Okay, the preaching, that includes a whole lot of different things, our personal study, reading, memorization, etc. And then also, too, we have prayer. Okay, we have fellowship and many others. And so it's our responsibility to behold okay, the glory of God. As we behold the glory of God, he works in our lives to do something we cannot do, and that is to transform us into the image of Christ. And we see in this text that that is from the Spirit, that is God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and so we're being transformed as we see the glory of Christ in the Scripture from one level of glory, okay, to another. That is sanctification, most definitely. An application of this text, specifically in counseling, could be to emphasize the means of grace in someone's life. If they're struggling as a husband, okay, maybe even a, a young Christian, okay, to obey their parents, okay, for example, And so a person who needs to grow in Christ but is floundering could examine their interaction with God's means of transformation and even consider what else they are beholding that may have an opposite influence, okay, in particular. You guys think about that? Uh, Many times in counseling, I, I say this to many people who come in, the people who grow the most are the people who are most involved, okay, engaged in God's means of grace, Right? usually I give them homework they go home they do their homework and they're reading a book they're listening to other sermons they're doing a lot because they are overwhelmed to understand God's will and to live it out in that particular context in their marriage or whatever it may be problems that can take a year to really sort out sometimes can take a couple or a few months to really sort out because a person is so engaged in God's means of grace and you can see the spirit's transformation in their life Right, giving them wisdom Okay, and growing them radically, okay, from selfishness to Christ-likeness very clearly. Quick note on Mike Riccardi's book. If a number of you guys, I think, have purchased that, and maybe a number of you have read it. A quick uh, just caveat, if it helps. Uh, back in the day, I'm, I listened to 2 Corinthians 3.18 by Mike Riccardi years and years ago, so this is kind of a refresh okay, that he just preached here recently. But in his book, he, meant, he uses the word joy Okay, instead of delight. So if you listen to his sermon this last Sunday, that might be a noticeable difference, okay, in the book and in his message. And I think that clarifies some things. I think if you read the book, there's an appendix, like explaining what he means and kind of defending because he had some trouble, okay, with uh, people understanding and connecting to that word. But as we think about the word delight, okay, how our affections engage, okay, with what we love, okay, we're directed to behold God's glory. Okay, to appreciate it, and the Spirit works in our lives, and so we can understand and see the connection between delight okay, and our transformation as well, too. This is really seen clearly in, in a, a passage like Psalm 1, verse 2, where it talks about the man of God and him delighting in the law of the Lord and it being his meditation okay, day and night. But to connect these, these ideas, this, this idea uh, delight, with worship as well too. Remember the passage we went over, Matthew 6, verse 20, right? What a man treasures, okay? And uh, it says, what, it's a, oh gosh, what does it say? Where your treasure is, there your heart, okay, will be also, all right? Where, what you treasure, that your heart will be also. Well, where was the man's heart, okay? His thinking, his meditation in Psalm 1, verse 2, on the word of God. He delighted in it. It was his treasure, okay? He loved it and his heart was engaged, his affections were engaged in it. And so we can see that delight, another way we could say this is delight is another worship word, just like what we looked at a couple of times ago, a couple of meetings ago. Remember those worship words, study, sacrifice, excitement, um, or some other ones, identity, delight can certainly be another one as well too. It's an aspect of worship. That's why Matthew 6, 20 and Psalm 1, 2 are essentially parallel in a way. All right, as we transition over to our review, kind of looking at what we looked at last time we got together in terms of sin, guilt, and conscience, and then we'll look at our notes here in just a minute. Let me open up with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for our time. Continue to give us wisdom, Lord, to take all these foundational truths from your word and to help us understand very practically or how they can be applied in our own heart and in ministry as well too to others as we come alongside to encourage provide counsel that would honor you that we love you and pray this in jesus name amen all right a quick review we went over a lot last time but take some time here to go over it we looked at the biblical process of change we started this section of notes and we looked at uh, specifically first sanctification what it is we looked at its definition or it defined as sanctification meaning to make holy okay to be separate from sin and to be made holy in our everyday lives. It also carries the idea of being made useful to God. We looked at that in 2 Timothy 2.21. We looked at the different stages of sanctification, both positional, progressive, and perfect. That is freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, and then one day freedom even from the very presence of sin, okay, and glorification. We looked at a definition of progressive sanctification, which which of course is what most people mean when they say sanctification. Wayne Greedham says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. We looked also at sanctification's position and power. Sanctification again begins when we're placed into positionally the person of Jesus. Okay, at salvation, right, at conversion. Sanctification therefore from that point is possible because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives we looked at some sample models of sanctification if you remember that, that is different people's view on how sanctification really works in our lives, we looked at the Wesleyan view the Keswick view and the Reformed view as well too Uh, someone came up and asked a great question last time just where you could learn some more about that if you guys are interested, there's a book called uh, Five Views on Sanctification It's written by five different individuals and they kind of have an opportunity to respond to each other's positions. It's a really helpful book and it adds two different views as well to the Pentecostal view and the Augustan dispensational view as well too. So if you guys are interested in learning more, that's a great book as well. All right, part one, that is of key elements in the process of change. We looked again at sin, guilt, and conscience. Sin, again from the ESV study Bible, is anything, whether in thought, action, or attitudes, that does not express or conform to the holy character of God and his moral law. And we looked at guilt, okay, and particularly at the world's war on guilt. You guys remember, if guilt, okay, if there's no lawgiver, then why feel guilty? Okay, if there's no sin, there's no difference between right and wrong, everything's subjective. Okay, then guilt, understandably, would be something that's bad, okay, something terrible, in other words something that we wouldn't want to think about very much because of the negative impact it has on us, right? But if there is a God, if there is a law, then guilt is critical. So this denial of guilt in the world is dangerous because if one does not think rightly of guilt, it removes the possibility of sin and more specifically their need of a savior. We've looked at the the world's also two explanations for the effects of guilt, okay? They would say this is, guilt is, I'm not responsible for what happened because of these things, Their environment, and of course, these can have influence most definitely. Some might say it's a type of sickness, okay, that made them sin. Their heredity or biology, certainly all these can have impacts or influences, absolutely. Some may say it's false guilt, okay, it's it's not something that's actual or real. And then shame as well too could be a way to uh, explain it away in the sense that people would say that we shouldn't feel bad about who we are, okay? Um, lastly, looking at uh, well, the world 's uh, war against guilt there 's been some efforts to eliminate the effects okay the feeling the negative feelings that come with it. Some have sinned more. Remember we talked about the uh, gosh the uh, cauterization what 's that word again searing there we go, thank you searing of the conscience. we talked about chemicals okay, this could be anything from drugs, okay legal drugs every all, all the way okay to uh, over the counter type medicines, okay, to prescribe medications, certainly. And again, medications certainly have their place. They're not sinful. Okay, We don't want to uh, condemn somebody because we find out they're taking an antidepressant, a depression medication, things like that. But at times, certainly, these drugs also, too, can mitigate the effects of guilt on the conscience as well, too, which would be negative overall Okay, as we seek to minister God's grace and salvation to them. Blame-shifting is another one. Self-esteem, okay, you should shouldn't think this way about yourself think better of yourself and then self-gratification as well too things like ice cream or you know Netflix uh, things like that okay to mitigate the effects the negative feelings of guilt on conscience we looked at a biblical understanding of guilt as well too that is the legal liability or culpability to punishment we looked at how guilt is a fact you guys remember that and not primarily a feeling it is a fact not a feeling the term guilt refers to the fact of liability and not the feeling that can accompany it Negative, guilty feelings are instead the result of doing something we know is wrong. It's an operation of the conscience. Therefore, if we do something sinful but not know it, uh, uh, we will not feel guilty. And so we can truly be guilty but not feel guilty. Leviticus 5.17 talks about this, that if we sin in ignorance in particular, we're still guilty, even though we may not know it. Leviticus 5.17 We talked also about dealing with guilt in particular. That is, we must never minimize the fact of guilt. Another way to say this is that we must never minimize sin. Okay, we must never minimize sin. We also mentioned that we must never minimize the feeling of guilt. Okay, someone may say, I feel so bad, and because we love them, we might say, Oh, don't feel so bad. Okay, all right, it can certainly happen. We love them, we care about them, we don't want them to feel bad. But sometimes that's God's, maybe even the Holy Spirit working in their life to help them understand and appreciate the significance of their sin and their wrong. And so there's always an underlying reason for guilty feelings and taking them seriously provides great hope for change and salvation in particular. Uh, We must also never underestimate the effects of guilt. Psalm 32, Psalm 38 graphically uh, reveal the devastating emotional effect, uh, physical effects that guilt can have on a person. I, I think at this point, we were kind of going quickly, okay, through the notes, if you guys remember that, kind of towards the end. And I thought of something that I think would be helpful just as a clarification. That while we do not want to minimize guilt, we also need to be sensitive to those who are overwhelmed by it. Okay, you guys, uh, it can be devastating in people's hearts and souls and lives many times. To avoid this unbiblical impact on a person, okay, we must <clears throat> talk about guilt. Uh, We must also not fail to do so in the context of the gospel and God's amazing grace, his forgiveness and cleansing that's offered in Christ, all right? Those things have to balance. As someone understands the depth of their sin and are overwhelmed by it, they also have to understand the amazing, overwhelming grace, okay, and love and forgiveness, okay, and embrace of God whom they've offended, okay, whom this guilt, whom this sin is ultimately against okay, like the prodigal son's father coming out ultimately to embrace him. There's a hymn that I think depicts this truth as well too. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. All right, that certainly can be an effect of sin in our conscience, but it is the gospel, okay, not Netflix, okay, or medicine or anything like that, okay, that would absolve, okay, ultimately guilt. That can only be done in the gospel, okay, in the grace of Christ. We also did the conscience, that is the warning light that reveals guilt. It is the soul reflecting on itself. And so the conscience involves what we know or believe rather than what we feel. The the feelings are often a result of the operations of the conscience but are not identical with them. Because of sin, we may believe something is right but feel hesitant or even hostile towards it and we can feel good about something that we know is wrong. Unfortunately, because of sin, these things can happen. Okay? And I'm sure we've all experienced them in one way or another. The conscience should therefore never be our guide, but should, should be our guard. Okay, God's word has to be ultimately what we're looking to for a right picture of right and wrong. It should inform our conscience, particularly direct our conscience. We looked at the importance of a clean conscience. 1 Timothy 1.19 says that if we neglect a clean conscience, it can lead to a shipwreck of our faith. And so critical all right, that we not continue doing something that we believe is wrong in particular. Okay? Romans 14:23 makes that really clear that if it's, if it's not done in faith, in other words, if we don't believe it's right to do, we should not continue to do that thing. Okay, And again, that's not we feel it's wrong, it's that we know or believe it's right or wrong. That's the conscience. Variations of conscience, the seared conscience, the untrained conscience, The overactive conscience and the biblical conscience. And the biblical conscience is one that is over time shaped, okay, to understand and respond to actual sin. When I say this is wrong or this is right, it's a response, okay, because the Bible has shaped and formed our conscience so that our conscience acts directly in accordance, okay, to the Word of God. And that's an ongoing process that we continue, all right, to achieve, to grow in. We lastly talked about the solution to guilt, which we've been talking about here throughout, but it says, the only true answer to guilt is forgiveness through repentance, okay, and the grace that God offers, okay, through Christ, the grace and forgiveness God offers through Christ, okay, and, and, and repentance certainly is required before salvation and after as well too. All right, because we were rushing last time, I didn't get to talk about some applications, okay, to think about how would we use all this material in counseling particularly. I mentioned one a moment ago, the balance of guilt and grace, okay, as people, as we get overwhelmed with sin, we need to continue to remember that the resolution to that, okay, much like the weight, okay, that was on Christian's back in the Pilgrim's Progress, rolled off as he came to the cross. We too, as we look at the cross, okay, can have the burden of sin and guilt alleviated through God's grace, okay, in Christ. And this can be a great encouragement and a help to people, a great book for that, if someone is struggling, is a book uh, by Richard Sibbs called "The Bruised Reed." If you guys haven't read that, it's an excellent book to read. That helps us understand the compassion and grace and kindness of God. Yeah, the book is uh, Richard Sibbs. It's uh, called "The Bruised Reed." And all these resources that I mentioned too, uh, Steve usually makes a list on the website. So if you guys miss one too, or wanna remember one that I've mentioned in the past, I believe he keeps a running list as well too, if that's helpful. Another application of this among many, I'm sure, I just have two more here, is that it's helpful counsel for issues of the conscience. Okay, as you guys meet with people, there certainly are a whole host of different issues of conscience. Okay, everything from health care. Okay, essential oils, okay, that's one's fading a little bit, but it's been there, okay. Um, what else? Uh, engagement in Christmas or Halloween, okay, some even birthday parties, okay, what's right, what's wrong, should we watch Disney movies, okay, you know, all these different issues of conscience, okay. Some people might say watching Iron Man would be sinful, okay, for example. And so how do we work through, think through, or or, or do we homeschool our kids? Okay, another maybe more touchy issue, right? And so thinking through issues of the conscience, all right, and directing our understanding of what's right and wrong back to the scriptures. scriptures. Romans 14, as we mentioned earlier, is a great text for reasoning through and helping people, okay, to understand issues of conscience, okay, and, and, and to inform their conscience of right and wrong. I also believe too it can help someone take responsibility for their sin. You know, as we look at okay, even these notes, but also past notes as well. Too, the Bible makes it really clear that our sin, okay, is our responsibility. Okay, Jesus in Mark seven, okay, where does where does sin come from? All right, our, our uncleanness doesn't come from the food that we touch, okay, with unclean hands, and it goes into our body, but it's what comes up out of the heart. Okay, in particular, that's what makes us unclean. And so as we think about, okay, our own sin, okay, we need to take responsibility. Certainly our environment, okay, other factors can make those things more difficult because they put pressure on us, okay? But the reason why, okay, you, when you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice, is because there's orange juice inside the orange, right? Okay, if you squeeze a sponge, okay, and water comes out, okay, why, why did the water comes out? come out? Well, there was water inside the sponge. Yes, it was squeezed, Okay, but the reason why when we get squeezed, when pressure comes on us, is because of our own hearts and what's in there. There was no one more squeezed, okay, than Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. Okay, and yet only love came out. He perfectly loved the crowd. Father forgive them. His mother made sure that she was taken care of. And the man who repented on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He never sinned, although that was I I think very clearly the most difficult, painful, excruciating pressure that anybody could have ever been under. And so as we grow in Christ, okay, it is not the external pressures that we're seeking to alleviate, they are simply those things which expose what's already inside of us, okay, that water in the sponge that comes out under when we're, when we're squeezed. And so we can be led, okay, in thinking about this material to, to take responsibility fully, okay, for what comes out of our own heart. Okay, I've caught myself when I'm talking to my kids. You made me so angry. <laughs> you know it's like, well, well, you know, hey, the that was really hard what happened, but actually I got angry because of what I was thinking and what I wanted, all right? It was it was on me. It was the orange juice, okay, inside the orange that got squeezed and it was my responsibility. I need to think through and to change my thinking according to the word of God, my desires according to the will of God, and therefore my behavior will change even if I'm squeezed in particular, okay? Any questions before we transition to our notes for today about these notes specifically? So if you have any questions about the class overall or about any other question in counseling, happy to answer those after this, I'll hang out. Okay, usually I'm here for a good 30 minutes or or longer. Happy to answer those questions. Uh, but any questions about these notes, how to apply them to your life or to counseling in particular? And Steve has books, just so you know. In case that encourages you. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, have I ever had somebody in counseling blame generational curses for why they are the way they are? And I mean, the short answer to that is no. Uh, uh, but uh, everything under the sun, okay, it's it's always always like that. Okay, going back to Adam and Eve, okay, in the Garden of Eden, uh, it was the woman you gave me, God. So it was God's fault, okay, and it was Eve's fault, okay, ultimately. And so people tend uh, in so many different various ways to blame others, okay, for what is what should be their own responsibility in counseling too, just to make a quick note I very much want to be compassionate we, we have to be compassionate and caring about the pressures okay, those things are real, they're difficult, they're hard Okay, and so we want to be moved Okay, with the difficulty the pressure that's put on somebody while still balancing it with an encouragement to honor Christ and to grow in the midst of those circumstances as well too, All right, great question any other questions? So let me repeat the question. So it's kind of a gen- more general counseling question, right? Where you're counseling somebody, mentoring somebody, and they're sh- continuing to struggle and they're blaming you. For it. I see, I see. So you're feeling bad that you're not doing it well or in a helpful way. Yeah, I think that's a great question because I-, I think we want to examine ourselves. Uh, there, was, there was a little booklet that I appreciate a lot. It's called um, Help for Counselors by Jay Adams. I, I used to use that little booklet very often when I was a new counselor. And I just review it, I think it has a list in there for 50 reasons why counseling fails. And I often go over it and I learned a lot because I'd go through the list and I'd usually find like 10 things I didn't do very well. And so I think, yeah, self-examination, You know, we always wanna be learning and growing. Uh, I think that's where I always go first. But I don't think that we also, too, as 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 things go south, it's always our fault, or we need to always feel that way. I think where, where responsibility lies, we need to be fair as well, too. And I, I just say many times in counseling, it is the hard heart, okay, of another person, okay, their unwillingness to apply and to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, really tremble at God's word, okay, to humble themselves and bring themselves <sighs> under the counsel of God, and to make the difficult changes that God wants them to make and to do the hard work it takes to renew their mind and continue to grow. And so I just say I I always reflect upon how if if something is not going well, how I could do better, how I can help somebody. Oftentimes I spend a lot more time in prayer, okay, and how to think through and to develop wisdom if there's something creative that I can do better. And that was these last two weeks, I've had some very difficult situations and I'm trying to think through Is there a way I can serve them better? Is there something more? Is there a passage? Is there something else that can help them get unstuck? But um, at the end of the day, I don't. I don't know that us needing to grow is sin. Okay, either. And I don't. So I don't want to put that on myself that I'm doing something wrong, as as I think maybe your question implied. Is we want to grow, we want to change. There's obviously we're sinners. There's certainly that possibility as well too. Um, But. You know, we want to balance the responsibility. And I look to myself, I I think through how I can grow, but I also, too, think about them many times. Most often, it's because of the reasons I mentioned related to their own heart that counseling tends to not progress. Are they taking the truths that were already given? Maybe there's some limitations in your counsel, but are they growing? If, If those truths are helpful, they should be, right? If they apply their circumstances, they should be growing, okay, in some sort of way. So hopefully that's helpful. All right. One more question. So, you mentioned about homeschooling and stuff like that. So, where do you draw the line where you say, like, this is good, this is bad, especially coming from a different culture where homeschooling or public school is a very common thing? Sure. So, the question, again, just for the recording, is in, in areas of conscience where you're trying to help somebody, maybe even from a different culture. Where homeschooling, or you know, whatever it may be, and you know like having people in your home can would be another one as well too. In some other cultures, um, where that's that's really looked upon as the model for what maybe a Christian family should do, is that the right way to say it? How do you help them in particular to think through that? Yeah, and get if, if you don't homeschool your kids, or if you send your kids to public school, that gives like conscience. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and so it might bother your conscience if you see other people doing it when you're not. Yeah, and I would just say again is the, o- the only way that we should feel uh, guilty, okay, or believe we're doing something wrong is if we have a chapter in a verse that says we are sinning. That is what should provoke and shape our conscience in particular. And so if we don't have a chapter and a verse, we should not believe, in my perspective, a uh, biblical perspective, I believe, that we should think we're sinning. And so, but I, I think too, you ask a question about cultural norms and things like that. I mean, there's, there's lots of differences. This is very challenging, okay? Uh, sending your kids to public school is very different than sending your, in Texas is very different than sending your kids from public school in California, okay, in San Francisco. Okay, and so there's lots of things to consider and to reason through. And so I don't know exactly where you're, you're talking about in terms of culturally. Um, maybe public schools there are like San Francisco. And so you'd wanna think through the influence and the impact on your kids. But we'd still, we, what we would say then is that public schooling your your kids in San Francisco is probably not wise as you're thinking about raising up your kids in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Okay, and, but it wouldn't be a sin to send your kids to to, to public school. Does that make sense? Right, because the Bible doesn't say that it is. Yeah. The, there's no chapter and verse that tells us where to, where to put our kids in school. We have that freedom to choose. All right, well, appreciate the questions. I think all those are extremely helpful. Let's jump into our notes here as we talk about confession and repentance. This is key elements in the biblical process of change, part two. In the believer's pursuit of knowing, loving, and serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he must possess a deep theological understanding of sin, guilt, conscience, repentance, and faith, forgiveness and covering and replacement, including mind renewal, in order to help people change, and even for us to change biblically. Let's look at Now, as we looked at previously, sin, guilt, and the conscience, let's look at confession and repentance. Okay, to be in Israel, think about this with with me, to be in Israel 2,000 years ago would have been pretty remarkable. It was at this time and place where Jesus Christ, the God who made everything, was born into the world. This event was so significant that before God brought it to pass, he raised up a forerunner named John the Baptist, to go before Jesus and prepare his way. Yet John's preparation was not physical. John's duty instead was to make sure, he wasn't to make sure that Jesus had a safe travel or a safe place to stay. No, his ministry was to prepare the hearts of those in Israel for the coming of Jesus. To accomplish his work, John's ministry centered around one word, the word repent. It's Matthew 3, verse 2. Interestingly, the first word that came out of Jesus' mouth after the beginning of his public ministry, was the exact same word as well too in Matthew four seventeen, repent. for The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many things have been said about the word repent over the years, but one fact is undeniable: it is not lacking in emphasis. Repentance is important to God and was central to the ministries of both Jesus and his forerunner John the Baptist, and therefore must be essential to essential to understand for anyone who desires to follow Jesus or to come alongside those, okay, and counsel them, okay, to follow Jesus as well too. Let's look at repentance defined and an explanation specifically. The word repent basically means to turn or to change. The Greek word metanoia translated repent in English means to change one's way of thinking which results in a complete change in behavior. Repentance is best illustrated by a picture of someone who is walking one way towards sin, okay, and does a complete 180, okay, towards Christ and righteousness. The low needed Greek lexicon describes repentance this way to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Repentance, therefore, is a necessary component of genuine conversion to Christ. Unsaved people must turn from sin. Which is the state of self-rule, which they have lived in as their own lord and master. Remember, Jesus or Paul said in Romans ten nine that we are to confess Jesus as Lord, okay, and believe in our heart that He was raised from the dead, and we will be saved. Repentance also remains continually necessary after conversion. You can see uh, David practicing it in Psalm fifty one. So, saved persons must confess and turn from sin which is the specific symptom of the lingering disease called the flesh or remnant sin. Often this change is referred to as the putting off, okay, and putting on of what is wrong. Therefore, a true believer will grow in sanctification as we talked about in past lessons. They are someone who has repented of their sin and continues to practice repentance as well. Let's look at some different definitions from some different uh, theologians and also a Bible dictionary Wayne Grudem says repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin a rejection of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ Charles Spurgeon which is I think my favorite he says it's a discovery of the evil of sin a mourning that we have committed it a resolution to forsake it it is in fact a change of mind of a very deep and practical character with which uh, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. It captures the affections, okay, and our our relationship to sin in a way that no other definition does. It's a great one. Thomas Watson said that repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled, okay, as they see their sin and then visibly respond, okay, or visibly, excuse me, visibly reformed as they respond specifically to their conviction. Lastly, from Easton's Bible Dictionary, it says that evangelical repentance consists of, one, a true sense of one's own guilt and sinfulness, two, an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, as we talked about earlier, that balance, three, an actual hatred of sin and a turning from it to God, and four, a persistent endeavor after a holy life and walking with God and in the way of his commandments. All true human repentance has reference to a turning from sin and turning by faith to God for forgiveness and renewal. Okay, as we looked at in all these different references. Scripture often alludes to a false repentance. However, that does not actually bring forgiveness. You remember John the Baptist's words, okay, to the Pharisees when he said, you brood of vipers. He exhorted them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Their repentance, in other words, was false and so in light of this false or potentially false repentance we must understand some elements effects and examples of repentance in order to practice it ourselves and to help others do so as well let's look at B elements of true repentance and as we think about repentance you guys just remember it goes back to all the the context of all the notes that we've done before okay repentance is not separate from all those things repentance is a redirection of our worship just like we've been talking about. Okay, remember the big picture diagram? We looked at the people that struggled with anger. Okay, they had struggles with control. That's what they lusted for, wanted, were living for. Okay, maybe it's people's opinions or success or whatever it may be. But what repentance does is to turn us from those things, okay, to Christ, to love and delight and worship him and to do the things, to bear the fruit, okay, that he desires in our life, as our direction, as our worship and our affections are directed to Him, and the things that He loves and wants us to love, as well too. Number one in elements of true repentance is comprehending. This is seeing our sin. Okay, this is just as uh, Spurgeon mentioned a discovery of the evil of sin. Okay, this sight of sin, being able to see and understand it. Or as we hear a sermon, as we read in the Bible, we. Our sin is revealed to our own hearts. And so we must understand the truth relevant to our sin and Savior before we can repent. The Greek word most often translated repentance is metanoia, which you mentioned a moment ago, and denotes a change of mind. And this is where it starts. As soon as we see, okay, that, that we're guilty, okay, that we're sinning, okay, our mind changes, okay? That's the beginning of that change, of seeing our sin. Number two, unfortunately is a different number two. Of all the notes, we're five sessions in, I'm glad that we haven't had no significant revisions to the notes so far until now, Uh, but number two is contrition. So kind of add that in there, there's four of these instead of just three. I moved it up, it was regret under the next point, okay, under effects below, so we'll skip that one and fix those points as well. That one was missed unfortunately as we've gone through all the notes. But after we comprehend or we see our sin the appropriate response personally is contrition. Okay, two other synonyms for that are the words regret or sorrow. Okay, there's a broken-heartedness. True right, sure, repentance may not always be accompanied by intense emotions, especially those that are visible to others, but in many cases a feeling of sorrow corroborates other evidence and points to a real change in thinking as in again Psalm 51. Right, the broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. That was the true worship and sacrifices that God desires. Right, not that we just bring bring offerings, okay, but that our hearts broken, okay, over the things that offend God. Emotional responses alone, however, do not prove that repentance is genuine. We'll look at that here in a little a little bit as we look at Second uh, Corinthians seven, okay, because we look at godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and we'll look at the difference between the two of those. So some people can be outwardly sorrowful, but not necessarily in a way that truly is directed towards god 's honor and glory okay we 'll look at that more in a moment and just a quick note again: intensity of emotional responses will vary okay you don 't want to look for the exact same response in you okay as in other people okay, their level of maturity, development, etc, can be very different okay as a as a, as a a Christian who's been a Christian for many years, and I look at my children, okay? And they have a different emotional response, okay? Uh, maybe they are believers, maybe they're not, okay? Maybe it's a fellow believer, okay? We don't wanna say you need to feel just the exact same way we do as well too, okay? The spirit, okay, matures and grows people, okay? And it may not always be exactly noticeable to us. But I believe as we comprehend and see our sin The appropriate response at some level is contrition, a broken heart towards God that we've sinned against Him. What follows this is confession. Number three, confession. The twofold nature of inward confession is revealed in the meaning of the Greek word or verb homiligeo, that is to say the same thing. We must acknowledge to God the fact of our sin and agree with God about the nature of our sin. Basically, what God says is sin in His word, Okay, lying, for example, if we lie, we say, God, in our confession, we've lied. We've, said, we've done the things that you say are sinful and evil. Okay, it's to say the same thing, that's confession. And that's to humble ourselves. As you look back at uh, Thomas Watson's definition, okay, as we are inwardly humbled A part of that humiliation and bringing ourselves low is to go to God and to tell him the truth, okay, about what we've done in particular, It can be very difficult, as I'm sure all of you guys have experienced. Thomas Boston, another Puritan, in his book, Repentance, says that confession essentially vomits up the sin. Then once we have vomited our sin through confession, we must not return to that same vomit, we must think about it that way. Okay, the Puritans, particularly Thomas Boston, had a great way with words. Okay, and these word pictures, and I think that's an excellent way to think about confession in so many ways. Okay, that we would not want to return to those very things that we just confessed to God. And so, from here, we then number four: choose to forsake our sin. Okay, choose a different direction, a different path in life. Let me turn over to proverbs if you guys want to turn there proverbs 28 it highlights these two things confession and choosing or confession and forsaking verse 13 so proverbs 28 verse 13 it says he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion so if uh, you're okay with uh, words not being alliterated, you can just cross out "choosing" and put "forsake" there. You know, maybe that helps you emphasize the point even more. I have no idea. But true repentance always includes a willful resolve not to repeat the sin and an act of resolve to pursue righteousness in its place. Okay? It, we want to bear fruit to God. We want to put off lying. We want to put on the truth. We want to put off stealing and get a job and give okay to others. To put off anger, okay and sinfully angry words and put on patience and put on words to edify, okay, for example, this is repentance, and so repentance repentance always has effects. this is c effects of true repentance, or you could say fruits of true repentance as well too. All the repentance itself is an inward turning that takes place in the heart and mind. It will lead to a change in other areas of a person 's life as well too. If it's not accompanied or followed by such effects or fruits, when they are appropriate, it is not a real repentance, but a false one that fails to bring forgiveness. You guys, I I can't tell you, so many people have been in my office and said, I feel so bad, will you forgive me? And then just continue, continue. There's no change in impact in that person's life. The first effect or fruit is number one, restitution. Again, these don't always apply to every sin. The word means to set things right. The repentant sinner must fulfill any obligation to the offended party. This includes both an outward confession when it is appropriate and a willingness to accept the consequences. If so you guys remember one key example, okay, illustration of this in the Bible is Zacchaeus. Remember he stole, okay, from people. And so he determined when he saw Jesus that he was gonna go back and return the money that he stole even more than that. It was an example of restitution so instead of regret here let's put number two to scratch that out that's above contrition and we'll get number two replacement okay we'll cover this in detail next time we get together that is the putting off and putting on and what all that looks like what the renewing of the mind specifically is what we'll say about it here is that true repentance will lead to bearing fruit of repentance okay this is the the overall idea here of this section often this change is is accomplished through the process of replacement that is seen in both Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, as well to the putting off, renewing the mind, and putting on of Christ's likeness. Number three is reconciliation. Again, these are always necessary. Is a question. Well, it's not repentance altogether. Sure. In terms of, uh, well, Romans 7 and Paul's conflict. Yes. Yes, the question is, so in light of just thinking about repentance in general, does someone ever come in and kind of with a Romans 7 type of argument where they may be continuing in their sin, they've come in, they've said, hey, I've sinned, I've done wrong, but there's no change, but their heart is kind of where Paul's is at as well too, that they do the things they do not want to do. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what Paul is capturing is the sentiment of, of every believer in some sense in Romans 7, Okay, all of us are sinful. And so we will have a struggle. We will be wrestling with sin. But the, the truth is well too, and so we will do until we are made perfect, okay, in Christ and we see him have some sort of degree of wrestling with sin. But the truth also is too, is that we can put on Christ. And so what you want to do is to equip that person, okay, with the truth so that they can grow Okay, so 2 Corinthians 3.18, as they behold the glory of Christ, they are being transformed from glory to glory. And so we want to encourage them with the hope okay, that things can truly be different. Right? If they are a believer and they can understand the truth, therefore, okay, and grow in Christ, that they can also make progress as well, too. I think that should be their heart along the way. in the homework that we give them, which we'll be talking about in later times together, should be helping them to know the specific truths they need to know and to be equipped with and to encourage them to live those things out practically. And it's only if they reject those, okay, as a believer or an unbeliever, that they will not be growing particularly. Does that make sense? And so we want to encourage them that certainly, while certain sins, certain habits can be hard to break, if God's spirit is working in their life, okay, and they're willing to do the work that God calls them to, there can certainly be change and growth and God expects that as well too that's why church discipline etc may be necessary to help encourage and be involved in a person's life to help them in those particular areas okay great question going back to number three reconciliation and talking about the effects or fruit of repentance Uh, one Greek lexicon uh says of of reconciliation from Matthew 5, 24, that it is this idea of making peace with, okay? Making peace between where it has been disturbed in a relationship. And so reconciliation includes, from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, includes the removal of the offense, which caused the disruption of peace and harmony in a relationship. And the way that happens biblically is through confession, okay? Going to somebody, confessing it, sometimes through confrontation, potentially. And then that other person who was offended, who was sinned against, forgiving that person. Okay, that's how reconciliation takes place, both between God, okay, and man. We come to God, we confess, we repent, we place our faith in Christ, and we're reconciled to him in Christ. God is willing to do that with anybody who'd come to him that way. Unfortunately, this process of reconciliation takes two people, right? And so this is a question very often that I get. What if... I've confessed, and they won't. Like, we still need to be reconciled. The tr- That's true. But one passage that's very helpful is Romans 12, 18. It says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so what we want to do is, if we've offended someone, we want to go and do everything that we can, okay, to be reconciled. Or maybe someone has sinned against us, on a repeated basis. And so we want to go to them to be reconciled, but maybe they reject that, Okay. We want to pray for them. We want to do everything that God calls us to do in particular. But that that process, that reconciliation may not be possible. Okay. But the fruit here is us doing everything that we can do on our side as much as it depends on us. Whatever we need to do biblically, we're going to do that. So, so think about reconciliation. When our sin has resulted in a broken relationship with another, true repentance will cause us to do whatever we can to transform the conflict into a peaceable and edifying friendship. Okay, to restore that friendship which begins with reconciliation. Okay, wherever possible. Okay, restoration, the restoring of that relationship, to back to what it was always begins with reconciliation. So as you guys think about marriage counseling, if you guys are counseling some friends or maybe you're counseling yourself, okay, that, that happens. Okay, to all of us, the man of God and uh, Psalm 15 speaks truth okay, to himself and his heart if there's ongoing strain in your marriage, ongoing conflict it may be, or another person it may be that you need to be reconciled okay, to that person okay? is there a list of sins in your mind or in their mind okay, that they've not really fully dealt with with forgiveness okay, we'll talk about that next time okay? both attitudinal forgiveness, transactional forgiveness we'll dive into that more deeply uh, ne- next time or the time after something like that and so we need to be reconciled. So as you guys meet, you know, before we dive into solving all the problems, they may need to take some time to really confess what they see and know in their life. And sometimes you have to help them to work through and see those things and then to be reconciled to one another. Very important. Number four, lastly here in the effects of or fruits of repentance is restoration. Most often the immediate counsel for two people who are now reconciled is to build or restore their relationship back to at least to what it was. The longer the conflict, okay, an hour versus years, for example, or the severity of the sin, ends consideration versus adultery, the harder restoration, okay, tends to be. Okay, the longer that sin's gone on, the more severe it was, the deeper trust has been shattered and broken, and the more work, okay, over time, that's gonna need to take place to restore that relationship. Just a quick note, obviously, in cases involving really significant sins, abuse, Okay, rape, etc. God still calls us to forgive. Okay, he still calls us to love our enemies with wisdom, obviously, and to do good to those who do evil to you and with wisdom. And so I believe in, in, in many cases, though, that friendship is very unlikely okay, in those situations, but it's not impossible. A husband and a wife where there's been adultery, I've seen where God can completely change that marriage and restore their friendship, restore the trust. Okay, and then move well beyond okay all that was destroyed in that as well too, but there's also Matthew nineteen, okay, where severe sin happens, and there's an exception, Jesus says, except for immorality, where it may end that marriage relationship, and so when sin happens, okay it's God's heart, it's his desire for relationships to be restored, but there are certain circumstances, Matthew nineteen being one example where that may not be wise or possible, okay. lastly here we must remember that not every case of repentance requires all of the above changes and we must also be very careful to allow certain fruits of repentance to be defined by god rather than man as you guys think about what needs to change in that person's life in other words we need to have particular goals that come from their scripture okay as they seek to love their wife or love their kids or whatever it may be okay as they grow okay from anger to patience and edifying speech for example those Fruits need to be that come from the text of scripture, all right lastly here <clears throat> examples of true repentance, examples of true repentance. Uh, we see some different uh, potentially familiar passages here psalm fifty one you can see david 's repentance after he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, and really the whole nation in a way because his sin was public. He was a bad example, but you can see here this outline I often give this uh, whole chapter to people who are working through their own repentance it's a, a very helpful model David calls upon God whom he's offended okay? he's broken his law out of his compassion out of God's compassionate loving kindness to blot out his sin and to cleanse him to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity okay, that has polluted him and to be restored again to the right worship of God okay, and obedience to him In particular an awesome passage to think about repentance there's also Luke 15 11 to 32 that is the the prodigal son and talks about a restored relationship in particular where the son leaves his family okay and that would have been very different than nowadays okay sometimes all that happens nowadays is the Nintendo is not played as much okay when someone leaves the home okay but back in the day okay they would have been responsible to, to help with the animals could attend to the fields. It would have been very, extremely difficult for a full-grown male to leave and abandon his family, let alone to take half of the inheritance and leave. Okay? Very offensive and devastating. And he goes not only and does that, but then he goes and squanders it on prostitutes and on alcohol and friends, and it's completely gone. And God uses his destitution after that moment to bring him to genuine repentance, and so he returns back to his father's house. who knows that if he's coming, there's only one thing okay that could happen if him to, for him to show his face around here again that he is broken in repentance, and so his father runs to him, and his son confesses that he's sinned greatly against heaven and against his father, and his father embraces him and forgives him, and so an excellent picture of true repentance and also God's response to that out of his loving kindness which David mentions as well too there's also 2 Corinthians 7 verses 8 to 11 we'll spend the rest of our time here if you guys want to turn over there I think we mentioned this passage briefly last time did we? a little bit, trying to remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7 And we know that Paul, just kind of big picture here, Paul wrote two letters, at least to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We have those in our Bibles. But Paul also wrote another letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians to confront the Corinthian sin. And he mentions it here in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, this letter he wrote in between, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. What is is Paul saying? He's saying, I love you. I didn't want to make you feel bad for sorrowful. We, we care about people. He cared about this church. He, he found that it started. He loved these people. But he knew that sorrow was necessary. And this is why he says in verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything. That's why after the sight of sin, contrition, okay, or sorrow, regret, is an appropriate response as well to to understanding our sin in particular and so as we think about this there's one key part okay that we can expand upon a bit that is an understanding of the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow in particular and this is key as we evaluate our own response okay to our sin and the difficulties that our life may bring and result as a result of that, and also to those who we counsel, as well too. And so there are two different types of sorrow a man can experience, as we saw in Second Corinthians here. One is worldly, and the other is godly. In Second Corinthians seven ten, the apostle mentions both, but only uses one word, okay, for sorrow. And this lexical description of this word sorrow is a state of unhappiness. Marked by regret as a result of what has been ta- been done. Unhappiness, regret, sadness. Paul differentiates these two types of sorrow or grief by explaining one as of God in our text or according to the will of God and the other as of the world or according to the world. The second type of sorrow that is worldly is our focus to begin with. We'll talk about uh, godly sorrow here in a moment. David Garland in his commentary on Second Corinthians explains worldly sorrow this way. He says, Godly grief differs from worldly grief in several ways. The first difference is what causes the grief. Worldly grief is caused by the loss or denial of something we want for ourselves. It is self centered. It laments such worldly things as failing to receive the recognition one thinks one deserves, not having as much money as one wants, not getting what one covets. The kings of the earth, this is an example, The kings of the earth weeping and mourning over the destruction of Babylon, terrified at her torment that will soon befall them, and the merchants of the earth weeping and mourning, quote, over her because no one buys their cargo anymore from Revelation chapter 18 are examples of worldly grief. A second difference between uh, godly grief and worldly grief is its result. The selfishness of worldly grief gives rise only to despair, bitterness, and paralysis. It causes all souls to drown in self-pity and turns the sorrow into a canker sore at times. Many lead lives filled with regrets like Esau's when he sold his birthright or Judas when he was overcome by grief by his betrayal of his master. But it led to despair and the desperate act of taking his own life. Okay, not repentance. The third difference between um, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is the solution. Worldly sorrow is concerned only to relieve stress or to retain or improve one's circumstances. They want the difficulties, okay, that have made them feel bad, go away. If conditions improve, worldly sorrow is removed. Had the above circumstances in Babylon changed for the better, the people mentioned there would no longer be sorrowful, for their sorrow was according to what was in the world. Those things changed, okay, their sorrow would change as well too. The key here is that worldly remorse has its focus on the world and at its foundation is a self-centered concern for personal loss, whether that includes a car, a house, a job, reputation, getting caught, pain, or even the fear of punishment. Okay, the focus is on the world and the things in it. But it is a focus on the vertical. The, excuse me, uh, on the horizontal plane. Okay, and lacks any Godward focus or concern. Let's talk about godly sorrow. <clears throat> hope this is an encouragement to you guys. As as good as anyone, Spurgeon captures the idea of godly sorrow when he says this. This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. Godly sorrow grieves the sinner's heart because his offense is against God, who sits on his throne, defacing the image of the one who is infinitely loving and good by transgressing his Holy and most just law, having furnished a spear and the nails to pierce the Savior. One of the key factors then that separates godly sorrow from worldly sorrow is an awareness that sin reaches God. Godly sorrow has a Godward focus. It is sorry that it has offended and grieved God and challenges what we truly love, whether that which is in the world or God. Spurgeon captures this idea when he says, if I had a brother who had been murdered what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin that drove the dagger into my brother's heart surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime sin murdered Christ will you be a friend to it sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God can you love it godly sorrow speaks to the heart and it challenges what a person truly loves Jonathan Edwards says the more a true saint loves God the more he mourns for his sin, which cannot happen without a broken and contrite heart towards sin, as David expressed in Psalm 51. This is godly remorse, a remorse that is willing to part with the pleasures of the world and what it offers even at a loss to oneself, whether it be financial as you repay money that was unjustly taken, or reputation as you confess an embarrassing sin to those who need to know so that God is honored as he should be. So as you guys think about repentance, okay, and some of the different aspects of it, okay, David's example in Psalm 51 is key. Uh, Luke um, 15, the prodigal son is key. And what Paul talks about specifically in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses uh, 8 through 11 is key as well. Till me finish reading those last two verses, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death for behold what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you what vindication of yourselves okay, you want to make it right what indignation okay, what anger okay, towards the evil what fear okay, towards God and reverence having offended him what longing what zeal passion okay, to address these issues and what avenging of wrong a willingness to accept the consequences in particular in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter and that's a repentant heart okay it, it seeks to grow and change and to put off and to uh, do everything they can to work out one's salvation in particular okay i'll close with a quick story that i hope will help you guys understand kind of the difference here and uh, I can't remember if I told you the story or not. I feel like sometimes I tell the same stories over over and over again. So someone just stick their hand up, okay, if I had told this one before. But uh, Heath Lambert, uh, uh, many of you guys probably know him, but he was a pastor for a number of years down in Florida. Uh, he was the uh, director of ACBC for a number of years as well too. But he, and, and if, if you guys watch the observation video at the end of the class, it'll be him counseling as well, if that helps. But he was uh, counseling a person who had molested a child. And this person came into his office, okay, week after week, as he was meeting with them. And this guy was just absolutely broken, okay, sobbing, crying, and just overwhelmed. And um, a number of weeks into the counseling, he comes in. And the next time he sees Heath, he's he's jovial. And Keith was like, "What? What's going on?" And it turns out that this this uh, man's lawyer had found that the uh, prosecution, one of the police officers had gathered evidence inappropriately and had the whole case thrown out. A pretty devastating result. This man demonstrated in his jovial like, his happiness that that's all he was really, care- all he really cared about. And so what Heath told him is he said after he explained that the guy was happy and excited he said I, I'm terrified for you. Terrified. And he said that what what you have done against God has not changed one bit. All this reveals is your heart in this matter. Okay, again, worldly sorrow leads to where? To death, okay? that's why he was terrified, okay? It wasn't going to lead to a transformed life, one that honored and glorified God. This man may very well continue in these things, okay? unimaginable alright well as you guys think about all these things hopefully this has been helpful not only for your ministry but for your own lives as well too if there's anything that I can help you with or clarify afterwards about the class or some of the content would love to help you guys otherwise I look forward to seeing you again next week thank you